are listening to your pod and your staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California. And our mission is to shape college age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. So I'm assuming that everyone has a book or a movie that is just pure comfort food for them. When you're having a bad day, it can cheer you up, and it makes an already good day even better. For me, it's things like That Thing You Do, Ocean's Eleven, Cool Runnings, National Treasure. And I bring this up because Stanford, Maddie, and I are talking in this episode about Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it struck me as I was preparing for this conversation and while we were having this conversation that I get a lot of the same vibes with Philippians that I do sitting down to watch one of these movies. There's quotable lines that you just love to hear again. I mean, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Come on. That's so good. And then there's also moments where you say, I've seen this movie a thousand times and I've just never noticed that before. Philippians really is just phenomenal. And so we give it the your pod and your staff treatment. We crack it open with affection. We ask questions about things that puzzle us and we wonder how it might interact with our lives. So we touch on a bunch of stuff in this episode. We talk about joy. Is it a noun? Should it be a verb? We talk about training our attention. We talk about one of the most stunning passages in all of the New Testament about the nature of Jesus. And then Stanford just goes rogue. So if you have any affection for college life, any warm fuzzies for Stanford and Maddie, any appreciation for our banter, I promise you're going to love this episode. Enjoy the pod. All right, welcome back, College Life people. Good friends of mine together today, Mr. Stanford Gibson and Miss Madeline Peterson. Hello to you both. Hello. Hey. Uh, good to see you. Good to see you this morning. It is currently Wednesday, November 4th, which means that Tuesday, November 3rd is in our brief rearview mirror, which means that anyone who has a podcast open right now Probably 90% are talking about the election of the United States of America. And you know what we're going to do this morning is we are going to not do that. And we are going to talk about the ancient letter to a particular (laughs) church called Philippi. And so we're opening up Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. And I feel pretty excited about it. Maybe more excited about it than to talk about the election for sure. So we're talking about Paul's letter to the Philippians. And before we do that, I wanted to give just a little update that nobody asked for on Peter's experience doing these podcasts. Okay, Peter, no hey, could you give us a little update on your experience doing these podcasts? Yeah, somebody's, somebody's asking. Somebody's asking. I came to the conclusion a couple days ago that this is the greatest thing to do because right now, just reading through these letters like so frequently, you know, just what basically my working schedule is once we're done recording one of these podcasts, I just start reading the epistle That's for the right. next one. Yeah. And so it's on my mind the whole rest of the week. And I feel like I'm immersed in it. And I'm just experiencing so much joy in the actual scripture. You know, obviously my praying through the Lord's prayer is well-documented, maybe too well-documented at this point. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a time in my, honestly, in my like sort of Christian life where the scripture excitement and the prayer excitement are firing on all cylinders in quite this Ooh. way. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like yeah. it's often, they don't always go hand in hand. Like, sometimes I'm jazzed on the scriptures, and sometimes I'm jazzed on prayer, which, if we're honest, has been not a ton of times. But yeah. there's been spikes. <laughs> but yeah. sort of a prolonged experience of really loving both, you know? And this is a great thing. If no one listens to the podcast, at least that has happened in my mind, in my life. And I bring it up because it just reminds me again that the way to love this stuff more is to do it, you know, which is sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're in a conversation with someone, it can be such a hard sell when they're sort of struggling and feeling bored and feeling apathetic. And it's so hard when the answer is like, just get, just do it, just keep doing it and commit to it and trust that you're depositing stuff into an account you might not see for a while, but it's doing Mm -hmm. something. And so anyway, it's just encouraging to me that it's like, yeah, if you do it, if you throw yourself in and commit to it and Maybe get to talk about it with interesting people. Maybe that's also part of it. That really helps. Yeah. So anyway, my joy is high. That's what I wanted to say. (laughs) Second thing, jumping into Philippians. Here's my first impression about the book of Philippians is that Philippians 
Could it be any harder to spell? <laughs> yeah. Spelling is not my strength. Um, I was as anyone say. who has seen some of my PowerPoint presentations might guess. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable how bad you are spelling. I, so in high school, I actually had a documented learning disability. When I graduated high school, I spelled on a fourth grade level. Oh, the wow. red squiggly line has basically saved my career. But yeah. that said, I don't think ever in my life, not once, have I spelled Philippians correctly. There's like eight <laughs> L's in there or maybe P's. Who knows? What we need is like a little song, like Mississippi, that teaches us how to spell Philippians. Yeah, because it feels like it should have two L's. Well, I know that it's not both. Right? That's I know right. both That's are right. double. You know, That's and right. so sometimes I'll start spelling P H I L L, and then I'll get to the P's and be like, well, they can't both be double. Sometimes I just double the H for a good measure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm Vanna White. Can I have three P's? <laughs> Maddie, how do you do spelling Philippians? Um, actually, it's funny that you say that because I literally, on my notes, I wrote at the top Philippians and I spelt it with only one L, one P. And I was like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then so on my notes, there's a little P at the top of the paper, <laughs> putting an yeah, arrow in the other <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, it's hard to spell, but it's easy to love, I think. You know, so far we've talked about James and Thessalonians and Galatians. And so two of those letters are Paul's. So there's Thessalonians and Galatians we've talked about. And Thessalonians, if you remember way back when, is like Paul's tone was like pretty happy and chipper and he was pretty excited to talk to the Thessalonians. And in Galatians, he was none too pleased with their foolishness. And so we've sort of had this spectrum of, is this more Thessalonian letter, Paul's joy? Is this more Galatians letter, Paul pretty angry? And Philippians, I think it's safe to say, is more on the Thessalonian side. So maybe just even coming to the conversation today, I feel maybe a little bit like, oh yeah, this is nice. Let's read some of Paul. So anyway, it's actually pretty remarkable that it is a good tone knowing some of the context uh, of what's going on in this letter. And so, Stan, I'd love for you to fill in that context if you're able. Sure. So, the context is back in Acts 16. We all have access to it. You don't have to read any special books to get to it. But I just noticed a couple of things when I encountered that story again. So, it's this very actually strange scene. You know, Paul is an Asian person. He comes from Asia. And he's kind of on the border between Asia and Greece. And he has this vision of this like big weird guy who says, hey, don't go to Asia. You're not allowed to go to Asia. <laughs> he's like, well, what should I do? It's like Macedonia. He has this other vision of this like man from Macedonia says, hey, come to us. We need you. Macedonia's in Greece. So he goes to Macedonia because that's what you do when you see these weird visions of big people like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, like a strange episode. But it's also like, you know, as an Asian person, maybe he wouldn't have thought of like going into Europe. And so he goes to Greece. And it says, you know, Philippi is one of the major cities in Greece. And so that's where he goes. It actually starts with a scene where there's this group of women that go down to the river to pray on the Sabbath. Didn't Alison Krauss write a song about that? Really? Well, I would go down to the river to pray. And I went down to the river to pray, studying about that good old way. Remember that? I think that that's based in Mississippi culture rather than like whatatever the river is in Philippi. But I also don't think Alison Krauss wrote it. Oh, right. Right, right. Yeah. 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 It yeah. is in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The yes. only good Coen Brothers movie. Well. So, <laughs> so anyway, it's a great scene. And some of these women respond to the gospel, particularly one, a woman named Lydia who's basically the equivalent of a, you know, fashionista entrepreneur. She's a purple cloth merchant. And she starts holding the church in her house. Why purple? Like just all purple? The purple cloth is like, it was the most expensive. Oh, right. Yeah. People wear purple as a sign of status. So she's this purple cloth merchant, which makes her like, I don't know, like the one of the characters in The Devil Wears Prada or something like that. But <laughs> she, she comes to faith and starts having the church in her house. Then there's this slave girl who is possessed. Her owners are using this possession to fortune tell and making a bunch of money. And Paul drives the demon out of her and she becomes part of the church. So you have this church with that's built on this like, you know, Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada and right. you know, the yeah. girl and the exorcist. <laughs> but like the slave owners get mad. Paul and his companions literally get caned. There's a really interesting episode where he makes friends with the jailer, but then they get driven out of town. Interestingly, we don't hear about any men in this church. And when writing this letter in chapter four, he mentions the leaders of this church and two of the three leaders he mentions as women. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this in the context of Thessalonians, but the gender dynamics of the leadership of the early church is worth actually taking a pretty careful look at um, because it might not be what you expect. 
Yeah. So that's the context. This church starts, has a good beginning, has a diverse beginning, but then Paul is not allowed to stay there very long. And then Paul is imprisoned. And so the context here is that Paul is writing this letter from jail. And here's the thing you need to know about jails in the ancient Roman world is that they didn't have a meal plan. Right. Like food might be bad in current jails. There was no food in Roman jails. Basically, people that you cared about had to show up to provide you food, Mm. except Paul is in jail, probably in Ephesus. And he doesn't know a lot of people in Ephesus at this time. And so like he's getting hangry, right? Like it's not a good situation. And so the Philippians sent him money, basically put money on his meal card. And so that's the context. He's basically writing him a thank you note. And while he's doing that, he's Paul, so he also provides, like, real formative instruction. (laughs) You're basically telling us that in a Roman jail, you are not guaranteed any food. So you could very easily starve to death. There's probably many ways to die in Roman jail. But one of them is like, hey, we're not going to feed you. If you're going to be fed, it's going to be who you know on the outside world. And the Philippians are the ones that are supplying him with food. Yep. Gotcha, gotcha. So you're saying that this entire letter is... A thank you letter? (laughs) (laughs) It's the primary purpose. It's the inciting incident, is what a storyteller would say for the letter. And it also, I think, affects the mood because Paul's just eaten, you know, for the first time in a while, right? Like his blood sugar is high. But then he also has some things to say. Paper's not cheap. You know, this takes a while to get a letter off. So he takes the opportunity to provide some instruction. It's a thank you letter, which, by the way, in terms of being a thank you letter, I think it could use some work. Okay. He says in (laughs) (laughs) chapter four... He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble and basically give me food. And then later on in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases. Right. The <laughs> I don't, not that I, I didn't need this, but thank you. Anyway, it's not a, ro- <laughs> a robust thank you is I'm going to use this every day. The food tasted so good. Yeah, that's right. Now I have energy to continue <laughs> yeah. living. Not, I didn't need it, but thank you anyway. Uh- <laughs> I like in 229 too, he says, So we received him, the person who brought the gift in the Lord, with all joy, honor such men. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. (laughs) And there is this sense of like, thanks for the gift. I could have used it earlier. (laughs) You know, like, it's kind of a burn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like maybe Philippians, not the template for the great thank you note, but... I remember when I was in college, my spiritual practices were pretty fledgling and I was having trouble like getting them to stick. I had a, a mantra that was like, well, there's always Philippians. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent way too much of college exhausted. That's well documented. But if I was just like exhausted and could not figure out like, am I really going to start Romans right now? I just don't have the patience. Like I just go to Philippians. It takes about like 18 minutes to read and I just read Philippians again. And it has never failed to produce joy. Which is interesting based on what we're going to talk about next. We're moving to the segments. The first one, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, I have a little presentation to give to you. This first category goes a little something like this. I themed a theme and I will try to explain (laughs) to you what that theme is. Made lyrics. I made, a, made one more line of lyrics <laughs> on my drive What do you think? Um, oh, that's great. I now it. I feel pressure. I feel like next time I'm going to have to have another line. <laughs> no, let's keep building the song. But, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Pretty soon we'll be on to the next song. Right. We'll be on to confrontation. Yeah. There'll be a Javert part. <laughs> a theme to theme is what it sounds like. We try to pick a theme that we see through the text and just try to Tease it out. What's going on with this? And so, Stanford, the job is yours. What theme did you theme? Well, the theme that I themed was that it seems like Paul really wants to make joy into a verb. Paul is not into nominalizations. Let me explain yeah, that. Yeah, okay, back up. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm an engineer, which means that in addition to spelling, people don't expect me to be good at like other social skills. In particular, people don't expect me to be very good at public speaking or at writing. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm an above average public speaker. Yeah, I'm not an orator by any means, but that means that among engineers, like, I'm your Cicero. Well, people come to hear me speak. Let's just say that. But then also, as far as writing goes, you know, I have about six grammar tricks that I've learned along the way. And it just makes my writing pretty readable in like when you set it against the engineering baseline. And one of them is the content that Sophie 
has been dying for. <laughs> Sophie, our editor in chief, she's nice. been dying for grammar content on grammar the podcast. Content. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But like, there's just like this isn't mysterious. There's just a few rules you can learn, and one is that you want to kill your zombie nouns. You you want to kill zombie nouns, of course. And um, the real word for zombie nouns is nominalizations. Mm. But the idea here is that whenever you have a noun that should be a, a verb. Just turn that sucker into a verb. <laughs> and so I have a couple of examples here. One is we took all the facts into consideration, right? Well, consideration there is a noun that should be a verb. We considered uh, all the facts. We considered all the facts. Took is a very yeah. weak verb. You know, consider is a good verb. Or, for example, we undertook a negotiation. No, you didn't. You negotiated, right? Like, <laughs> let the verb be the verb. All right. So anyway, if you ever ask me to edit something, I will try to kill all your zombie nouns with my sawed-off nominalization shotgun. <laughs> here's why that matters. Not that that yeah. really matters, but here's why I think that matters. Paul uses the word joy five times in Philippians as a noun, but he's not super happy with joy as a noun. Because if joy is a noun, like you, what do you do? You feel joy. You experience yeah. joy. Those are pretty weak verbs. He uses joy uh, as a verb. When he kind of converts joy to a verb, it turns into rejoice. And rejoice just feels mm. like, I don't know, it just feels like something my grandma would say. It's like an old mm. word. It's like a religious word, rejoice. Yeah. If you just think about it, it's just like the strong verb of joy. It's like, hey, you know what? Do joy. Mm. Whatever the action of joy is, do it. And he uses the word rejoice seven times. It's actually tied for the most of the epistles with Romans. And Romans is like three times as long. And so Paul is saying, mm. hey, joy is a verb. You got to do joy. And like his topic mm. sentences in chapter three and four, like multiple topic sentences of multiple paragraphs start with, hey, you know what? Do joy, you know, verb joy. And at one point, it's it's really comical. He says, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. You know what? I'll just say it again. Yeah. Rejoice. <laughs> Do joy. The context yeah. is interesting because he's in prison and he's hangry. Like he said, like the meal plan is not the only thing that sucks about a Roman prison. And so we're again in this situation where, you know, the letters, like we said, are coming out of a pretty tough time in human history, actually like tougher in most ways than the time that we're in. And the letters again and again tell us to experience joy kind of agnostic mm -hmm. to circumstance. Yeah, I do think that this feels like an instance where the context really does matter. And yeah. I think it probably always matters, but it just it seems so clear. And it sort of strikes me, listening to what you're saying, that like you could almost just know the story of Philippians and know that this is a theme and like know that he says rejoice multiple times. And like you'd get something very valuable. You'd almost don't even need the rest of the stuff, the, you know, really, really great stuff, really wonderful morsels that he gives us. But just even the story, the narrative of he's in prison and he's writing to this church to thank them and he's rejoicing. He wants them to rejoice. Just that in and of itself is valuable, even for our own lives, to know sort of that story and to sort of embody that story, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, by the way, about this phrase? I don't know if it was just popular at the camp that I was at, at Mount Hermon. I think it's sort of popular beyond that. But like, choose joy. I feel like the little two-word phrase, choose joy, has become sort of popular in, I don't know if it's Christian culture. Yeah, yeah. my roommate says it all the time. Who? Which one? Uh, Megan. Megan. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Choose joy. It seems like it's a little bit of, it's trying to get at what you're saying, that it's like, there's something active in joy that we need to activate. It's got to be verbized, you know, <laughs> it's not do joy, it's choose joy in like our common parlance. And how do you, like, do you think that that's different? I think it's along the same lines. You know, joy is volitional. It's not a mood. Mm -hmm. It's not something yeah. that happens to you. You mm -hmm. put yourself in the way of joy through a, yeah. you know, a certain set of actions that I think we'll talk about. Definition of rejoice, I looked it up and it said, to give joy. And that's why I looked up joy. <laughs> and it said, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, good fortune, or by prospect of possessing what one desires. And I just thought that was so interesting because as I was listening to Stanford talk about how it's like a verb, how you make it a verb. Yeah. And I was thinking about the last part, by prospect of possessing what one desires. And so if you make it a verb, you're almost like owning it and being like, I have what I desire or like, do you know what I mean? I do actually, that didn't pop for me, but it's, if joy happens to you, let me see if I can put this in my language. You know, if joy happens to you, according to Webster, when you have what you desire, 
then to choose joy would be to open your eyes to the reality that you probably have much of what you need or desire. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like choosing to like see that that's already the case, you know, which I yeah. think Paul actually might agree with. It's like, if you have Christ, you have what you ought to desire, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. I think that a lot of the like psychological happiness literature, you know, happiness is a pretty tough thing to quantify because it's a pretty tough thing to define. So a lot of like psychological literature yeah. talks about like feelings of well-being is the metric that they go for, which I think is interesting that it's tied to that joy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way I would describe it is you know, joy is the recognition. I'm going to, again, choose a word different than feeling because I want a more active verb there. It's the recognition of well-being. It isn't something that just happens to you. Joyful people have practices of joy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, grumpy people have practices of grumpiness. And, you know, there's some biological mm-hmm. disposition there. Mm-hmm. But I think that these practices do move us in trajectory towards those things. Yeah. When I was reading, I noticed in chapter four, when he talks about how he is content, how he's learned to be content in basically all situations. And I was thinking like, that is definitely not Mm. me. And that is hard to do, you know, if we are called to be content in all situations. Well, Maddie, I feel glad that you brought this up because I guess on some level, I feel like this sort of like rejoice talk and, and even like a contentment talk, it sounds like something that I want and want for all people you know, all people that I know and love, you know, and mm-hmm. want for all the college lifers to, mm-hmm. to be able for this to be said about them. Like that would be the greatest thing, you know, that they could say. But then at the same time, I feel a little bit embarrassed by some of this. And mm-hmm. I think if I were to like park the car there and take a look at this, like the vista of my embarrassment, like what am I seeing? I think that I'm seeing mm-hmm. potentially, I feel afraid that what Paul is saying is ignore all your bad feelings right? Yeah, and just mm-hmm. be happy. Yeah just be content, just like ignore your depression or ignore your sadness or ignore your fear or ignore your anxiety and just choose joy. Don't you know that Jesus is good enough to like be happy all the time? And, you know, it's funny because I I sort of talked about this in my James talk. And the first draft of that talk was like almost like three times too long because I was trying to explain like you can count it joy when you go through trials because it's going to produce something good in you. But it's not saying like trials are good Mm. or that you're supposed to feel happy during trials like no trial is a trial but at the same time it, it's good and so like celebrate it and but at the same time it sucks so i think it breaks my brain mm-hmm. and so i love to just talk about that <laughs> you know like is paul saying to just stuff your bad feelings and like slap some joy on top of it and call it a day or is he saying something different yeah i think that's a really important nuance and i think that there might be a knee-jerk reaction to this because i do think that there have probably been traditions and times in the church where it just wasn't appropriate to be anything but happy publicly, right? Like there's kind of a caricature of a certain like 1980s Baptist culture or something like that that would be like, hey, you just just smile and go to church. Or like a critique of church is often like, I didn't feel comfortable being my real self. I didn't feel comfortable going with my real emotions. You know, I always had to feel like I had to be buttoned Mm -hmm. up or whatever, you know? That's right. And I think that's really important because I think that of all of the, you know, authors in the ancient world, there are a few that are more like emotionally transparent than Paul, right? Like we we talk about his mood at the beginning of each of these podcasts. He's not a person who, who hides his mood. And I think the scriptures are pretty careful about, you know, allowing us to experience the full range of human emotions. Like I made a literal mood map of the book of Psalms, right? And there's more sadness than happiness there. In our like canonical prayer book, you know, there are more prayers for sad times than happy times. And I think that's because life is like that. Like life is asymmetrically sad. And so the scriptures really encourage us and the Christian practice really encourages us to name our feelings, recognize Mm -hmm. our feelings you know, not hide them, not stuff them. It's not a practice of repression. I remember Miriam said when we talked about loneliness is that, you know, one of her adult practices is just to say to herself, I'm feeling sad right now. And just recognize it and not recognize yeah. it as something wrong, something right. that's just a, a fact in the world. Yeah. But, you know, in the like quest for authenticity, yeah. sometimes we just leave it at that. It's like, oh, you're sad? Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. you're angry? Okay. There isn't a sense of which, oh, but there are some practices that we can put in place so that we grow and kind of metabolize those emotions into a place of contentment and joy. And just as the scientists would say, well-being, 
there yeah. are there are actually practices that you can put in place that you know God has wired us to kind of be able to feel sadness and then move beyond it be able to feel yeah. anger and then move beyond mm. it those are the practices of adult spirituality yeah i'd love to talk about what those might be you know but before we do that like i think you never know how helpful this is but it's interesting to read these texts as a pastor and think about what i'm wanting for the people i or we are pastoring you know and sort of in the same conversation Paul says in chapter one, so again, let us remind ourselves that he is in prison in not a good situation. And then he says in chapter one and verse 12, he said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay, so it sounds like what he's saying is, yes, this is a bad situation, but like, actually, it's a great situation because it's advancing the gospel. Like, it's actually not that bad because it's advancing the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I would love it if there are students in college life who are able to see their own challenges through that lens. But I don't feel like I want them to feel the pressure to have to see their challenges through that lens, you know? And I feel like Mm -hmm. with my, I guess, more modernly trained sensibilities and psychological sensibilities, I want to say, dude, Paul, just like, be upset about being in prison, (laughs) you know, be upset that this sucks for you, you know, like you don't have to spiritualize this. You don't have to think about what's the silver lining. You don't have to find the one good thing and and tell yourself to not be sad about it, you know? And I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think this is an authentic expression of something, but I think that maybe we read this and then in our moments of pain or moments of trials, we think, oh, well, Paul saw like the grand story this whole time. So I should do that. I should look for like, what's God doing? What's like the hidden gospel nugget in this and not be sad anymore once I figure it out. And I just wonder if that particular leaning into this can be unhealthy. But the final fruit of this is so good of like, no, it it is good if you can see the bigger story Mm. through your trials. You know, I just, again, it's like, I guess I feel stuck because it's like, I want that, but I don't want people to feel the pressure to have to do that. I think the timing of Paul's recognition is really important because Paul is kind of looking back on what has happened and is kind of telling a story over top of it of how God has redeemed it. I think it's very important to say, when we say things like everything happens for a reason, yeah, everything happens for a reason. We live in a terrible fallen world. It's so terrible fallen things happen. That's the reason. You know, God doesn't make bad things happen so that good things can happen. What God does do sometimes is when something terrible happens, he comes in and brings in a little bit of comfort and joy to redeem that situation. And so, Mm -hmm. sometimes you can see that later. But trying to identify the silver lining Mm -hmm. in the midst of a trauma is almost never useful. My wife worked at the UC Davis emergency room for, you know, many years. And so, it's a level one trauma center, which means that she interacted with most people on the worst day of their life. And she could always tell the Christians because the Christians were like trying to share the gospel with the nurses because they felt like, this has to be happening for a reason, right? Like, and so they're already trying to make that reason happen by making something redemptive when really they should just be like mourning the loss or being with their loved one and just experiencing it in the moment. And so I think that you having a good theology of evil in the world and understanding that bad things are going to happen, bad things are going to happen to you. And the appropriate thing to do is experience sadness and mourn and look to come through into a period of joy, kind of on an appropriate time scale. And then maybe 30 years later, you'll look back and say, that was terrible. That was the work of a broken world. But God redeemed it in a pretty special way. There was this stream that came out of it that was quite lovely. It's kind of the time scale on which that yeah. works. Yeah. So Stanford, I know that you mentioned that you put practices in your life in order to kind of feel this contentment when in uh, situations where you might not feel content, but you've learned to feel content. Can you tell us some things about those tools? Yeah, you know, it was actually a different letter, a different one of Paul's letters that we're going to deal with later in the quarter that kind of rung my bell on this. I was in college, I was leading a wilderness trip with a bunch of like high school students, and they weren't up yet. And I was making the fire and reading First Timothy. And there's a sentence in First Timothy where Paul says, you know, contentment is great gain. And I just like I just thought about that for a, a minute. I thought, um, I think I'm missing something big in life. There's like a secret here that I'm just missing. And here he actually calls it a secret. Like mm-hmm. there's a secret to life. Mm-hmm. And that is like the contentment is like a superpower. Yeah. And so the, the way I think about it, you know, I'm not a pastor, so I don't think about this pastorally, but I am a parent. And I think about 
Okay, if I could leave my kids a million dollars or practices of contentment, which is going to leave them feeling more prosperous? Which is going to give them more mm. gain? I just feel like you know a million dollars will go away and it'll just create an appetite for another million dollars. But contentment will allow them to feel you know well being and you know joy like whatever their like situation is. That's actually the better asset to have. It's the superpower. And there are practices of contentment. And Paul actually talks about them. So Paul doesn't just like say, hey, you know what? Do joy. You know, here's joy as a verb. Go do it. He ends the book with a series of practices. And the practices really are about attention management. It's in chapter four, the first half of chapter four. He talks about prayer. And then he really talks about like what you set your attention on is going to generate your mood. He says this. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me and practice these things. There's that word, practice. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul understands something that I think that brain scientists are really just getting a hold of is the fact that we don't have direct control of our mood. I can't tell my mood, hey, be better, right? Like I can't say, hey, you know what? Feel joy. And actually like choose joy is a little iffy even mm-hmm. like because my mood doesn't like respond to that. You know, it, it's a poorly trained pet. It's more like a cat than a dog. <laughs> what feelings of well-being do respond to is the things that you train your attention on. And so... I think that the realm of attention management is the realm in which we train ourselves into joy. Okay. So I feel like that answers, and maybe this was by design Mm. on your part, which would be brilliant, but that sort of answers the question of like, is this like, are you stuffing your emotions and just like putting some topsoil of joy on top of bad roots, you know? (laughs) But it's like what Paul's saying here, it seems like is no, 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 no. You have to train your roots. You have to train and you have to water those so that those produce contentment in times of trial. And those produce contentment in high times mm. and low times. It's not like in the moment of feeling a low time, you just like decide, you, you shake yourself out and you decide to like, you push your emotions toward joy. It's like, no, 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 you do the slow work of building up contentment muscles and joy muscles. And now I'm all sorts of metaphors are mixed into this pot right now. There's muscles and roots and all sorts of stuff. That's right. right. That's right. Um, <laughs> My bad. Okay. Which makes you yeah. like just about any New Testament author. I just love yeah. mixing metaphors. Yeah. I don't think even though we've talked about this, you know, before, I just it's sort of popping to me again here that it's like it's not a in the moment reverse your emotion. Right. It is live in such a way mm-hmm. that you're training contentment in yourself. There's an interesting thing that's going on in my job right now is that the leadership in my organization is bringing in a series of professional development classes on time management, which is just good for you know anyone who's a professional. But the people that they engaged to do this time management training said, you know what we're really finding helpful, in, particularly in this time, is not so much time management, but attention management training. Mm-hmm. And I responded back to my boss that I just thought this was brilliant because I feel like I spent the first 15 years of my career learning time management and the last five learning attention management. Mm -hmm. Because basically what you give your attention to, Simone Weil calls it the ultimate act of worship. The things that get your attention are the things you care about. Mm -hmm. And structuring your life so that only the things that should get your attention do. And so an example of this, we said we weren't Mm going to talk politics, but like last night, Lots of people were feeling anxiety about the election, including me. I feel anxiety about the election. And I did not once check the results. We didn't put the television on with the results. I cuddled mm-hmm. up with my kids on the couch. I read to them for like 45 minutes. We built a memory together, you know, because they deserve my attention. Mm-hmm. And I just went to bed with joy instead mm-hmm. of anxiety. What you invest your attention in, if it's good, if it's lovely, if it's excellent, that mm-hmm. will generate joy. If it's trashy, if it's angry, if it's undermining, it's the scale of practices. It's the things that you do on the three-day scale, on the week scale, on the month scale that generate your baseline level of joy. And happiness can like spike and drop from that baseline level of joy, but it's that baseline level of joy that is built on these you know daily, weekly, monthly scale practices. Well, Stanford, I feel like that's... Sort of what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast. I think so. Yeah, right. I didn't necessarily know that I was doing this. 
I was doing this sort of so that I would be able to talk intelligently about the texts for the podcast, but I was training my mind and I was putting myself in front of things that were excellent and pure and wonderful. And I felt myself change. Like I felt like I, I have just had this experience. I can't remember if I talked about it on the podcast, but I've had this experience where I am realizing how differently I naturally think than the scriptures. Like I hadn't read the scriptures this way in a while. I'd read right. them more, a little devotionally, more, much more slowly, just a little bit of a time. I haven't read the, the whole argument of one of the epistles or like all the Sermon on the Mount or whatever. I haven't done that in a while. And when I returned to it to do the podcast stuff, like I started to feel how differently I had begun to think than what I'm seeing in the text, which just makes sense, I guess. Yeah. You know, it just makes sense that my attention had been elsewhere. And right. so my mind was starting to look and feel and behave like that. And so I've just found it so unbelievably refreshing to refocus my attention on, again, whatever is pure and lovely and honorable and excellent. And I just couldn't recommend it highly mm. enough for anyone who is floundering right now for any myriad of different reasons. I know it might sound hokey. I know it might sound like old timey church stuff, but maybe just commit to reading Philippians three times a week. It'll be a cumulative 45 minutes. You know, right. <laughs> we probably spend more time on the time we waste while we work looking at Instagram and stuff than 45 minutes in a week. You know, that this could be such good time spent doing this. So we're coming into the last third of the quarter, which could seem like a weird time to try to start a spiritual practice. But I think it's actually yeah. the best time to try to start a spiritual practice because if you could do it now, you can do it anytime. And yeah. so the idea is, you know, we're coming into Philippians. Colossians, Ephesians, which are some of the most accessible texts in the New Testament, long mm -hmm. sentences notwithstanding. Yeah. And so I would say that I would say, you know, if starting a spiritual practice is new to you, like it was to me when I was like, literally exactly at your age, exactly at your point, then put it on your calendar. Don't just say I'm going to do it three times a week, put it on your calendar. And don't just put it like on your calendar at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Put it on your calendar so that it comes directly after something else. Because habits are easier to instantiate if they're triggered by a previous event. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have thermo Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So say every day I have thermo. As soon as the Zoom shuts down for thermo, I won't open the internet. I won't go get lunch. I will open my Bible and read the epistle mm -hmm. and then write three sentences about it. And maybe even go for one walk around the block and try to spend five minutes in prayer. Yeah. But we're talking about like a 30-minute period of time. But it's going to work best if it's triggered by another thing that happens habitually in your life. And that's the best way to instantiate a new practice. Yeah. And there's, I'm always nervous about saying these because I couldn't agree more. And I'm always nervous about some voice in my head, some critic who's saying like, this is all so mechanical. It's mechanical spiritualization, you know? And I guess I would want to say, okay, well, then tell me how you read this passage about you think about all these things and practice these things. Like, tell me how you read that. You know, it's like, this will not happen mm -hmm. if you do not put your eyes to it, eyes and mind to these things. Like, you will not grow in peace. You will not grow in contentment. You won't. And you have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. I coach U10 boys soccer and I coach, you know older girls, right? And the girls are just clever and have their own ideas and are free and they're just doing beautiful things on the soccer field. And the U10 boys just have no idea what's going on. And yeah. so the things I do with them are much more mechanical and much more structured until they have the skill to create freedom and beauty. I really like what you guys are saying. Like a year ago or something, I was like, how am I supposed to like start this? Like, I know that I have to do these things, but like, how am mm -hmm. I supposed to do this? And I was like, I can't, like it is just not me to like pick up a Bible and just like, just read it because I feel like when I just read it, sometimes I just don't, I don't feel God in it. And so I'm like, oh, how could I do this and not feel him and kind of like have that experience that you're having, Peter, of like, wow, this is just so great. But a year ago, I read A Praying Life and I feel like that started my prayer life and starting my prayer life and just like praying consistently like turned my eyes to God, which then I felt like made my Bible reading like that much better, like basically jump-started these practices yeah. and habits and then led me into experience my Bible in a different way. So I think my point was like maybe even starting with prayer as like a yeah. habitual thing can also like jump-start like that desire yeah. to read your Bible and that experience that you're experiencing. What you just said was brilliant. 
Maddie, because I feel like Paul isn't even saying, finally, brothers, read your scriptures. Mm-hmm. That's you know? right. Yeah. Even with the story I just told about myself, it's not that every time I read Philippians, it was a magical right. experience. Or right. every time I pray the Lord's Prayer, it's a magical experience. It's like in the aggregate. I'm just changing, you know, I am becoming different, you know, and I feel contentment brewing. And sometimes it's off-putting. There's been times I'm like, why am I not more upset that not as many people are coming to college life? You know, why am I not like as Mm. freaked out as I would have been a year ago? That kind of thing. So I think what you just said is brilliant. It's like, it might not be exactly the path of like, you need to start reading Philippians every day or three times a week. It might be that you need to Mm -hmm. go on a five minute prayer walk couple times, you know, right. The prayer might draw you towards scripture, which might inform your prayers, which might dictate the conversation you have. It's just like you, it's less discreet mm-hmm. than, than maybe we make it sometimes. I think we try to maybe isolate the variables and try to see if you can like work on one of them at a time. But like, it is sort of a, a combined effort. It's like, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, think about these things and practice these things. It's not just read the scriptures and right. That's right. That'll produce joy, you know? And I think, so, like, there's spiritual junk food that you're going to choose to do less of that. You're going to make some healthy choices to just take in less of the garbage. And not necessarily, like, offensive stuff, just, like, trash. Just, like, stuff that's just not doing you any good. And you're going to start, you know, taking in a little bit more stuff that is good and pure and excellent. And that's not all the scriptures. But, like you said, we don't naturally think God's thoughts. And so, the, what the scriptures do is they help us like think God's thoughts a little yeah. bit. That's really all they're doing. And I don't tend to think of these as disciplines. I would put them in the metaphor that's popular now of like self-care. Like this is spiritual self-care. You need to set aside some time to rehabilitate yourself spiritually. And at some point, it just shifts from a have to to a want to, from yeah. from a need to to a get to. All right, I decided that I'm gonna do a. We're gonna do a little would you rather intermission. An intermission yes. of Wee Rabbits. I'm going to fire them at you, okay? It's not just a non sequitur. I promise okay. it's going to connect, okay? And I decided that I was not going to Google this. This was just <laughs> going to be me sitting down for 10 minutes and coming up with my own Would You Rather. That's better. One I will owe to Zach Mazzotti, who is just a genius at this kind of thing. But uh, the first one is his. Would you rather, Stanford and Maddie, be half your size or double your size? So you either shrink to be half your size or grow to be double your size. What would you rather have? Half half the size of myself. You'd rather be half your size. Yes. <laughs> half your half Maddie. Would they let me p- play professional sports? Sure. If you're good enough and coordinated, <laughs> it's got to factor that in. Maddie's going to be a slow walker. Think about all those teensy tiny steps <laughs> she ought to take. I would have to do some work on the house. But I think maybe double. Airplane travel is almost oh, off the table too. Oh, yeah. But I need to travel less. Here's the next question. This is a corollary. Would you rather be a quarter of your size or four times your size? <laughs> <laughs> a, quarter. a quarter. A quarter. Yeah. 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 A quarter. For sure. For sure. Okay. Would you rather right now, snap of the finger, be, we're just going to say, uglier than you are now? Or would you rather smell worse? Oh. I'm going to just give my <laughs> wife that choice. That's up to her. <laughs> <laughs> I say you'd smell worse. You'd you'd rather smell worse. I think she would choose uglier. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you say smell worse, not that I'm high on either of those right now. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, don't say that about yourself. Come on now, positive self talk. Then, okay. Would you rather instantly become more attractive or instantly smell better? More attractive. More attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like I would defer that to Amanda. I think she might say smell better. <laughs> Um, okay, here's another question. Would you rather live or die? <laughs> See, I think I know where this is going, but I'd rather live. Yeah, me okay. too. Live. At this point. Yeah. yeah. Seems yeah. like Paul yeah. disagrees with you. Okay. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Sounds like Paul's saying, would I rather live or die? I'd rather die and be with Jesus. But, well, for your sake, I'll, <laughs> I'll stick around. Yeah, yeah I'll yeah. stick around. I think that does show us a little bit that Paul's practices of joy are actually like aggressive because I do think that there is some depression going on right here. I do not think Paul is having fun in jail. Yeah, yeah. Okay, another would you rather is this one. I thought this was interesting. This is from my mind again. Would you rather remember everything exactly as it happened? So like accurately, you know, or 
just remember positive versions of things. Whoa. The book I recommended by Ted Chang a few uh-huh. weeks ago actually has a speculative fiction short story on what it would actually be like to remember everything and how damaging right. that would be to all of us. Right. But I think a lot of us struggle with this idea that our memories are not accurate. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And mm-hmm. I like the more and more I distrust my memories, yeah. kind of the older I get, and the more I realize that they have betrayed me. But to only remember positive versions, it does not sound helpful either. I know. So I think <laughs> I'd go with the former to have like a tape recorder memory. Yeah, I think both are pretty damaging. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think remembering things accurately would be like you could remember the really great things accurately and so always go back to those. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would pick that one. I feel like that one stumped you guys. I feel proud of that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, the last one is, would you rather have all the success and all the measurable things that tell you that you're a success be a reality for you? Or would you rather know Christ Jesus, your Lord? <laughs> <laughs> what would you rather have? There's a church school answer to this one for sure. Go ahead, say it to my face. My daughter, Karis, is kind of caught on to the church school answer thing. So when she says Jesus and rolls her eyes yeah. in her 13-year-old way, that's the way I feel like I'm answering this question. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, this brings me back to when I was in I was in youth group. I think when I was like 11, I wasn't really a Christian growing up. And so I was like just at this church youth group. And we were playing Would You Rather. You know, it was like, go to this side of the room if you think this. Go to that side of the room if you think this. And one of the questions was, would you rather read your Bible or go to the dentist? And I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to seem like I'm a good Christian. I mean, like I am a new Christian. I'm going to, you know, so I'm obviously going to go and read my Bible, you know, on the other side of the room. And I went over there and I look up. And everyone is on the other <laughs> side of the room. Are you serious? Yeah. And I was over on the reading my like Bible side. And the, the youth pastor, he yeah. was like, you would rather read your Bible? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I would. Oh, that's so <laughs> it was traumatizing. That's so traumatizing. He's like, prove it. Go ahead, go ahead and prove it. Read yeah. your Bible right now. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Betty. The reason I asked is because Paul seems like he would rather have Christ Jesus as Lord. He has this really amazing section in chapter three where he's basically saying, watch out for the people who say you need to be a certain kind of Jewish person, essentially, just like we were talking about with the Galatians. Watch out for those people. Don't believe them. He's like, listen, I had every reason. If that was the way to be saved, if that was the way to be right with God, like I was the top. Okay. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee as to zeal. I was a persecutor of the church, meaning like I was standing up for what we all believed in as to righteousness under the law. I was blameless. But all of that, all of that, which is like everything I measured my success by, all of that is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm just going to really quickly say why this has mattered to me over the years. And I think it's because, you know, it's very dangerous to say, why did God do something? You know, I don't know the answer to that. But I think over the years, I've been like, I think it makes sense that God used Paul. You know, he has this really strange way of providing sort of like barriers on either side of our sort of failure modes of thinking that we are not doing things well. So I'll tell you what I mean. So on one side, Mm -hmm. he's way better than us. You know, if we think that we are earning our way toward salvation or earning our way toward rightness with God, we could say, well, we're probably not doing better than Paul. You know, he was doing it much better than we were. And he's saying that that didn't count. He's saying that that was not enough. He's saying that that's just not the way to do it. So we're like, oh, okay, well, then it doesn't even make sense to try to be like that. Mm-hmm. Because Paul's saying, all you got to do is you got to know Christ Jesus, your Lord. But on the other hand, he was sort of a bad dude. Like he was killing Christians, like he was a murderer, you know? And so it's like, he's way worse than we ever would be, probably. Mm. So on one hand, he's way better than us. So like, don't even worry about trying to be better than him. But on the other hand, he's way worse. And he's in the family, you know, he's in the kingdom. Yeah, that's right. And so it's like, don't you dare think that you are too far gone to think that you could belong in this family. And so it's sort of like, he works on both sides of this sort of dilemma, which obviously it doesn't really feel like one person can, but emphasize different parts of his story and you'll find yourself not being able to outgood him or outbat him, which I think is cool. So anyway. Two quick thoughts on that verse. Yeah. One is that he says that all of these things he counts as you know rubbish or garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, yeah. my Lord. That word, rubbish, garbage, that's a, the Greek word is skublon, which is actually quite a bit stronger than rubbish or garbage. Yeah. It's like not quite as strong as our pejorative brown word, <laughs> um, like an S word, yeah. but it's... Pretty close. 
Like he's feeling pretty passionate here. The second thing is that the thing that he's striving for is to know Jesus. And I realize that's pretty fuzzy language. And, you know, I push back sometimes on the whole like religion versus relationship thing. Yeah. But this is actually really where we get the idea that the Christian experience is an experience of relationship with God, of like actually getting to know the creator of the universe. Like if you think about your actual would you rather, would you rather have everything that this world could author? Or would you rather know the most creative, most loving, most generous being in the cosmos there's actually a right answer to that question and it's the one that paul chooses super fun to think about and it's interesting you know in the whole religion relationship thing it's not just saying okay now that i know him i'm stopping i'm stopping all pursuit of righteousness or holiness or whatever Mm. he then talks about this possibility of attaining the resurrection from the dead and he's like i haven't already obtained this i still have to press on and strive Anyway, I love it. It's great. And so, so far in our conversation, by the way, we have done a theme to theme. And then I think this whole attention management thing is sort of the thing that I can't get out of my head. You know, that's obviously been a category that we've had of things that just keep running through our head that we're reading. And so it's sort of done a can't get out of my head. We've done this would you rather intermission. So we're going to move on to another category. And this is one of my favorites. And the category is called, excuse me, what? Excuse me, what? Excuse me, what? <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And so uh, obviously it's things that we are we see in the text that kind of make us do a double take. And so Stanford, what did you have for an excuse me what moment? Well, the excuse me what I feel like is actually one of my favorite New Testament passages. And it's the opening few verses of Philippians 2, where Paul gets pretty theological about who Jesus is and starts talking about how he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God as something to be grasped and takes human form and like starts to actually like answer some of the like metaphysical questions I say, but hold on, God came to earth and was a person. And did he stop being God or did he start being a person or did he stop being a person to be God? And like, it was like both at the same time. Like, how does that work? Like, I have so many questions. Yeah. And Paul actually starts to like go into those questions. And it's also confusing. It makes me say, excuse me, what? Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, it's interesting that Paul is thought of as this like metaphysical theologian to the point that some people will like contrast him with Jesus. But the truth is, is that he only really goes into the metaphysics of who Jesus is a couple of times here in, in Colossians. And the interesting thing is that he's not actually doing theology for theology's sake here. Yeah. This is what I'm going to talk about on Tuesday night, so we won't go into into a lot of depth. But the really interesting thing is that the reason that he goes into this passage, which is you know potentially, some people think that this is actually a hymn that the church was singing you know, as part of its spiritual practice. So it's actually like the oldest New Testament text because it's been in the church practice for a long time. The reason that he cites this hymn isn't so that he could say, okay, let me tell you the particulars of how the God-man works. Yeah, yeah, Because I know you're interested in that and we're going to do some theology because we're nerds. He actually has a practical reason. And that is that, you know, part of how he experiences joy are the practices of self-skepticism and self-forgetfulness. You know, not taking yourself too seriously Mm. and not seeing yourself as the main character of any story. And I think that a lot of like sadness of the process of growing up is that we realize we're not the main character of the story. Yeah. And that makes us sad. Like the more <laughs> we can practice self-forgetfulness and, you know, a lot of the thing that causes anxiety is just thinking that we're right about something when the rest of the world seems to disagree. Right. And so like having a little self-skepticism, particularly in our closest relationships. Yeah. You know, the most important skill that you can have in a marriage is self-skepticism. We just had an experience yesterday where my wife wanted to do something and I didn't want to do it. And I really didn't want to do it. And I said to myself, she has been right about this kind of thing more often in the past. Let's do this. And she was right again. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is the practice of self-skepticism. And so that's why he's doing theology in chapter two. It's not theology for theology's sake. Yeah. I like love that idea. And I feel like you can see it too, because like this whole brilliant, dense theological passage is bookended, not by sort of on ramps to theology, but it's bookended by ethics. It's bookended by like, this is how I want you guys to live your life. And so it's theology for the sake of living out the truth. It's not theology for the sake of knowing an idea. And I think that's really important, you know? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the other, having a mind which is like Christ Jesus, who, by the way, was God. Right. 
but did not count equality, and then goes into this theological. The incarnation is actually just an illustration of how we're supposed to live. Yeah. And then at the end of it, he does the do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so it's again, it's like, in light of this, then live this way, you know, so I love it. Okay, so that's a great excuse me what. And for our last category, our last segment, Stanford, apparently you have deemed the categories and segments that I have come up with to be insufficient. And you have gone rogue and (laughs) are thinking that you can just willy nilly come up with different ones that are not written in the clouds and that I've come up with. And so go ahead, whatever you just you why don't you take over the podcast? If you're going to come up with categories, why don't you just go ahead and take it from here? Well, I would love to, Peter, because I have a new category this week. I think it's just a one timer, but we'll see. You, You never know. My category is stuff you hear on a mountain. Stuff you hear on a mountain. Now, this is, <laughs> it might be a category that we yeah. bring back next time we do Exodus, let's say. Yeah. But uh, let me tell you a story. When I was early 20s, my first business trip was to Colorado. And so I took an extra weekend and rented a car and went and climbed some mountains. I was an East Coast kid, so I didn't realize what West Coast mountains were and became a West Coast person that day. I, I was driving through town the day before and there was a bike race through town. Um, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then the next day, I climbed Mount Massive. It's the second highest peak in Colorado, and I suffered, and it was wonderful. But I got to the top of Mount Massive, and I, I was like just kind of enjoying my granola bar. And you know, on the top of mountains, there's like this social pact that you don't really talk to each other because everyone's having a little bit of a spiritual experience. You yeah, know? yeah. And so then this young woman comes up after me, and she starts having her granola bar. And then this young man comes up after me. And starts hitting on the young woman, um, which is an incredible hiking faux pas. Like, my wife will tell you, don't hit on girls in the gym because they're doing something. They don't want to talk to you. It's a bad, it's a bad time. Bad look. Um, so bad anyway, look on my guy. It's yeah. a bad look. Yeah. So anyway, I'm watching this guy just fail. And I'm just like, just stop talking to her. It's not working. But then, like, it turns out they were both in the race the previous day. It was a triathlon. And she starts showing some interest and they're starting to connect a little bit. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually working for him. Against all odds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it turns out that they were both second in the race. They both came in second in the race. And now she's showing some like real interest. But then it turns out that the only reason he was second in the race was that he got lost and he cut off like 10 miles of the race. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he cuts off 10 miles of this race and he doesn't even win the thing. And like, it's just over. Like, she says like three more words to him and it's just done. All right. All right. So I just. <laughs> can, we, can we stop and say eavesdropping rules? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, eavesdropping is pejorative. I like yeah. to think of it as people watching. Yeah, people mm-hmm. watching. And so the reason I tell that story is because I love that story. I just like I think it's really interesting. But mm-hmm. I think of that every time Paul uses this language of running the race in vain. Right. Mm-hmm. And so starting in fifteen, just after where you left off, Peter, yeah. do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children without first of all. Do all things without grumbling is like, that's the toolbox of living in the church. And it's also another one of the practices of what you set your attention on. Mm. But Mm -hmm. all right, moving on. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is a Roman person. He lives in these Roman cities that have games. Like Romans were sports fans Mm -hmm. and races were something that was really important to them. And he uses this metaphor of like the race and training and hard training and hard training that's not in vain. And I have this picture of this guy who ran this race and put a lot of effort in and like it just didn't matter. He ran the race in vain. He took a wrong turn. And I think that's what Paul is saying is like, be careful to run the race well and mm-hmm. run the race all the way to the end. Persevere. Don't run it in vain. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the reasons that this has captured my attention is that we see again, yet again, Paul talking about faith. In Philippians 3.9, he says, righteousness comes from God that depends on faith. And you're just going to see this again and again in these Pauline letters. Is that Paul says, you know, righteousness, salvation, knowing God, all of these things come from faith, yeah. not from your works or your actions. But also, these books are like filled with metaphors of striving, of pressing in, of doing your best, of like really like setting in the practices that are going to instantiate the life that is the race run not in vain. And so we just keep seeing this tension again and again. We won't go deep into it because you know, we're hitting it often. But where the Christian life is a life of 
faith and the door is wide open and you walk through mm-hmm. it based on faith and nothing else. But then that faith is ratified by running the race well and taking up the race and not running it in vain. A way that I feel like I have thought about this sort of in metaphorical terms is like righteousness and faith and all that stuff is sort of entrance into the family or entrance onto the team. And so the door is wide open for that. There's nothing that you need other than to sort of acknowledge that this is a team you want to be on, you know, acknowledge that this is a family you want to be a part of. And this is a head of the household that you say is good and you're going to trust. So the entrance is wide open. But then once you're in the house, it's like there's a way to live in the house. The way you're living in the house has nothing to do with how you got in, but it absolutely matters how you do it. It's like once you're in the house, it's like we're going to live a certain way and we're all kind of going to become a certain kind of person in this house and and not even rules. If you follow the way, if you follow like almost like the style, then you have no reason to think you will not become that person. Mm-hmm. Let me mix the metaphor yet again. So I have a mentor coach. Anything that I want to do better, I find mentors that can help me do it better. And so there's several coaches that I consider mentors, but I think one of the very best coaches in Davis I think he knows he's a good coach. And to the point that he'll just take good kids to be on his team. Like he doesn't actually pull good soccer players on his team. He just pulls kids that he wants around his kids. And then he turns them into good soccer players because he knows that if they get into his program, he can turn them into a good soccer player. And so he'll just take anybody. Like you don't have to be a good enough soccer player to make his team Mm. because he knows that he can make you into an excellent soccer player if you commit to his program. I feel like that's kind of the metaphor is that you just need to want to be on his team. And then you get to be on his team. But once you're on his team, there is a program that he has in place that will turn you into the soccer player he knows you can become. Right. And it would be illogical once you're on the team to say, I don't want to do anything in the program. I need you to do the program for me. This brings us to one of the most famous verses in Philippians where Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Yes. God is the coach mm-hmm. who has a program. God will take anyone on this team. Yeah. And God has practices that he will put in place to help develop you into the person God wants you to be. Mm-hmm. And Paul's just confident that God is that coach. God is the coach that can turn anyone into the person that God envisions them to be. The first step is just to say, hey, I want to be on that team. And there's no tryouts. You get to be on the team if you want to be on the team. Yeah. But once you're on the team, it would be silly to want to be on that team, but not want to be coached by that coach. There you go. That's a good place to end. (laughs) Um, Well, let's turn our attention to life in quarantine. Quarantine Corner brought to you by, I don't know, streaming services everywhere. Watch on the green belt. (laughs) These are the sponsors of Quarantine Corner often. New hobbies. Very lucrative. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone would like to sponsor Quarantine Corner, uh, I'm all ears. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to go first Quarantine Corner because I have a little bit of a cheating thing. I'm going to do an addendum to last week's Quarantine Corner about my new pit boss. So Stanford, I have a question for you because Maddie's already heard my spiel. When was the last time you had like good ribs, like really good ribs? Oh, it's been a while. Uh It's definitely not been ones that I've cooked. Was it at an establishment of some sort? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I almost certainly paid for that. I have news for you, (laughs) my friend. I would like for you to think about where that was and then write them a letter and say, I found your new rib cook. And it's me. (laughs) You say, my friend Peter would like to be the person that cooks your ribs because he has attained the best ribs that anyone's ever eaten. I made the most unbelievable ribs. I'm not even afraid to be hyperbolic or I'm not even afraid to be arrogant about it. These were the most unbelievable ribs you've ever had in your life. I won't tell you everything about them, but I will tell you that I now know what it is to have a hobby. All last week, I was obsessed over this, like what I was going to cook first on my pit boss that I told you all about, very excited. Remember the price that I paid $13 mm-hmm. out of pocket for bad boy? <laughs> all week, I was excited slash stressed. Like, what am I going to cook? What am I going to cook? I want the first one to be good. I'm, I'm sort of nervous to do it. And so I found a sage. All right. I found a sage and I picked a lane. His name is Malcolm Reed. And he's going to be the person who teaches me how to do this. And I cooked his ribs. Anything you want to do better. Yeah. You find a mentor. Find a mentor. And I knew like, if I just like Google like, pit boss recipes like you have no, no way of knowing if they're good or bad mm-hmm. and if you see any recipe with like three stars it's like this has got to be trash you know and so i i went on reddit I, I don't think i've ever been on reddit in my whole life and then someone said something about malcolm reed and then there was some positive a- attention for him so then i just googled malcolm reed and i found my sage and so malcolm reed if you're listening to this podcast uh, i'll be <laughs> a guest on your podcast please you can be a guest on mine you're very important to me 
and a, a new mentor in my life. But anyway, these ribs were unbelievable. Nice. Fall off the bone, unbelievable flavor. And anyway. <laughs> well done, my friend. Thank I'm you. very impressed. Ribs are hard. Mm. Yeah, ribs are hard. They took some nursing. Yeah. It was about seven hours on that smoke. Yeah. I love how much you love your ribs and your new pit boss because I think I have, <laughs> yeah. like every time I'm with you, I think you've asked about 10 people, when's the last time you had the best ribs of your life? And then you're like, you haven't because you haven't tried mine. And it's like every single person. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, incidentally, that's like something I do. I'll just like kind of get a bit and, and then, then I'll just work it. that yeah. bit in like every <laughs> conversation I have. I and love it. Katie might get annoyed because it's like she hears the same thing over and over, but it's like, this is the first time this person's hearing the bit, you know? Like in conversation, you should do that. You should like have something that you're just like bringing up in every conversation. So then you'll, you'll always have something in your back pocket. <laughs> That's right. That was That's free. Right. Well, so my quarantine corner is something maybe none of you have heard about before. It's a little event that sometimes happens in the end of October called Halloween. Um, my quarantine <laughs> corner is Halloween. So Christians sometimes have a like complicated relationship with Halloween. Before I was a Christian, it was my favorite holiday. And then after I became a Christian, like I thought, well, maybe this is not something we should be super excited about. There's like skeletons and ghosts and like witches, and maybe that's not our thing. But maybe. when I had kids, I-, I realized that like the neighborhood aspect of Halloween is really delightful. Like it's a celebration of neighborhood hospitality. And I kind of got into it again. I kind of got behind it again. We decorate with dinosaurs. Nice. Because those are dead things that are morally neutral. The cool thing is that my wife is a very creative person. And we're that family. We're the family that like makes their own costumes. We do matching costumes and things like that. One year, we were in the newspaper because my wife had made us all Lego minifigure costumes. Well, we were in the newspaper again this year. So my quarantine corner is actually my wife because she's remarkable. Yeah. So there was a database in Davis of, you know, COVID safe Halloween options. And there were houses that were trying to do different things that were COVID safe. So we built this candy shoot. It was a tube that the kids decorated with dinosaurs that started in the window of our house Incredible. and then went down to the sidewalk. And kids would come by and they would say trick or treat at the end of the shoot and we would shoot candy down it to them. And it was <laughs> it was so fun. And so the Enterprise came by and they took picture of Xavier at the bottom. It was like in the November 1st Enterprise of you know receiving candy at the end of our candy shoot. And then we went on a little tour. There was a candy zip line. There were a number of shoots. One person said they were going to do a catapult, which is what I wanted to do, but um, that did not materialize. But the creativity of our town during Halloween was really delightful. Yeah. Good job, Gibson's local celebrities in the paper. Maddie, what's your quarantine corner? Lay it on us. My quarantine corner is that the other day I had to, well, I didn't have to, Jensen had to make a video for College Life. And so I was like, yeah, I'll help you. I'll help you. Uh, I'll film. And so we went out to the Greenbelt and we just like spent all day. It was like this beautiful day. And we just spent the entire day filming, just making this like really funny instructional video. And it was so fun. We like did different transitions. We like did like he had a GoPro. So it was really easy to like throw it and like catch it. And like it was just really cool. And so after the video, we were like, we should totally do this again. And so now we're like planning on like doing like uh, like story videos, like making like a little movie and like a music video. So yeah, that's my new hobby. This is remarkable. <laughs> this is amazing. You guys have some, uh, from what I hear, some high quality content on TikTok <laughs> as well, uh, the Jensen and Maddie show. So I will say that Jensen and Zach Morris were actually at my house when my ribs started to cook. <laughs> And he was saying that he had storyboarded for this video for College Life. And I was thinking, what do you mean storyboard? Aren't you just like talking <laughs> at a camera? You know? And then I saw the video. I was like, oh, I get it. You are good at this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have creativity that I couldn't have imagined. It was so good. It was good. It was good. It was fun. So I'll be looking forward to future Jensen Maddie <laughs> oh, productions. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, my friends. That's it. That's a wrap. Philippians in the books. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right, that's it for the Philippians pod. Philippians really is phenomenal, isn't it? Well, next stop on our journey is another classic. We're diving into Colossians and we'll be joined by Bronwyn Lee. Cannot wait. Thank you, Stanford and Maddie. Stanford, your insight and your stories rule as always. And Maddie, thank you for pushing us to talk about contentment. Super helpful to think about. Thank you, Kyle Jung and Josh Paskey for making our music your regular Simon and Garfunkels. And thank you to Heidi Rudvotes for putting in more hours into these episodes than anyone else as our editor. 
And to close College Life, let me remind you that we love you with even more passion and force than Roland exhibits on leg day. See you next week.